0: Now, if there is anything that you are not likely to do anytime soon that might seem more removed from you than any activity you might have planned for today or tomorrow, it is that you are going to cross a gigantic river where the water has been stopped up and there's a golden ark ahead of you leading the way as you go into conquer a land that God has given you. I mean, if that is on your agenda today or tomorrow, (laughs) I'd like to know. Um, But I I bring that up to say that there are times when we read Scripture and, and we just maybe find a hard time connecting ourselves to that moment, especially when you're in the Old Testament and when you're in passages that seem to speak to a totally different group of people and a totally different time. And yet... The scriptures have been written for us, not only, um, not only in the sense that these are stories that inform who we are and what we believe, but that God wants to speak through this account directly to you as you deal with work and bosses and timelines, as you, as you deal with family and, and children, as you deal with trying to figure out um, what you want to do or be when you grow up. These verses matter to each one of us because in them God is telling us about his priorities and plans, what kind of God he is, and God doesn't change. So the same God that we see here presented in Joshua 3 is the same God that hundreds of years later would bring about the events of Passover, or I should say the Last Supper, which we are celebrating this this week is the same God who will one day rule and reign over all eternity as we've been talking about in the morning. So we need these words. And yes, it is helpful if you can kind of imagine yourself in the position of these Israelites to use your uh, sanctified imagination to maybe uh, imagine yourself in these places. But ultimately, we need to lift it out from that time and apply this to our hearts today. So Uh, All that just to say, um, while while what we will read here almost certainly will have nothing experientially (laughs) to connect to you. There is something to learn still. There is a connection to be made. In the same way that, you know, the things that my grandfather, my great-grandfather did, I don't even know most of what they did. My dad has told me a little bit about his grandfather, my great-grandfather, but most of it almost might as well be mythology, you know, as far as like the truth of it, my experience of it—I've never read anything about it—and yet, would I be here today without <laughs> my great grandfather? The answer is no. I'd absolutely <laughs> need him to be there. It, it, it matters to me. Um, it, it, it determines uh, who I am today. So, in the same way, you might read this and think, "Well, I, I don't know what this has to be. Without this happening, you wouldn't be here, <laughs> right? Without this happening, uh, you're you're." <laughs> None of us would be here right now. I can tell you that for sure. So we should care. We should mat- it should matter to us as a part of our own uh, history, even if it seems so far removed. Okay, I'm just trying to get you, to, you know, to be invested in this time. So let me read. We're going to take this in chunks. Um, I'm going to read the first six verses, and uh, we'll, we'll try to set the scene here. Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shatim, And they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before." Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The first thing I just want to focus on in terms of placing us in the context of the history is to talk about this Ark of the covenant. Now. I'm going to read a quote from a commentary, just very good and concise to picture it. The, the, let me read the quote, and then I'll just say a few more comments. I, don't, I, I was debating whether I'd do a whole thing on the Ark of the Covenant, because you can go down that rabbit trail or not. So uh, this is the quote. The presence of the Ark indicates that the crossing of the Jordan was much more than a military maneuver. It was a religious procession. The ark was a portable shrine built as a rectangular box, 27 inches wide by 27 inches high by 45 inches long. It was overlaid with gold. The cover of the ark had golden cherubim, angels, on each end facing toward the middle. It was between these two cherubs that God met with Israel, Exodus 25. The ark symbolized God's presence among his people. This is basically a box, let's say, about this big, now this high. And they carried it with them. So that's what you have to uh, imagine. It's overlaid with gold to angels, and their their wings are ported together. I hate to make the reference, but if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, it kind of looked like that, okay? So (laughs) we don't know exactly what it looked like. Um, but, but they did a decent job trying to portray it. So I hope that's not blasphemous. That might be blasphemous. I'm sorry if that is. Yeah, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was a movie thing. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that your face will melt off if you open. <laughs> arc. That's what happens in the movie. Spoiler alert for like a Thirty or forty-year-old movie. All right, no, I actually, I, I really, if that's if that's blasphemous to make that connection, I apologize. Um, I mean, there are depictions of the Ark and books and other things, but just to reference a secular one, maybe that's not uh, right to do. So I, I apologize. I should have thought that one through. Anyway, um, so what is happening here is sort of interesting because it sounds like there have already been commands given. So. Uh, when you read Joshua three and four, you have to look at it in sort of a a Hebrew way, meaning in most Western thinking, we have a very linear reading of narrative passages, right? What happened first must be mentioned first, which happened second must must happen second, and so on all the way to the end. But Hebrew literature is not quite like that, for example, in Genesis. One and two, Genesis two has a, almost a retelling of some of the events of Genesis one. It goes backward in time, it, it narrows in on the sixth day of creation, even though uh, in Genesis one it fills out the whole week. So you might think, oh, is it, you know, this is what some commentators say. Are we telling the creation story again? Is this the second creation? No, it just, for Hebrew mind, it's okay to kind of go back and forward if it tells the story better. If it makes it more interesting, if there's a theological point to be made, sometimes things are not presented exactly in order. Um, so for example, you have a span of three days that are going to be talked about, right? Um, and uh, the time will pass by very quickly. So in verse 2, um, there's a command, or, that, uh, or not a command, but a, a saying that at the end of three days, the officers went through the command, uh, through the camp, And commanded the people. Well, like, what three days are we talking about here? Right? I mean, before in Joshua 2, uh, it doesn't say anything about it. So, this is the first reference to any kind of time frame. So, uh, you see something like, you know, tomorrow, consecrate yourselves in verse uh, five, in verse seven, today. So, you have a span of time that was very short. And you don't hear anything about this Ark of the Covenant or any of this stuff um, anywhere in the book of Joshua. Well, likely, Joshua received the commandments about the Ark in verse 7 and on. And you're sort of uh, going back in the story uh, or uh, the events that are happening in Joshua 3, 1 through Six are assuming that these events have already happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, so in one through six, you have kind of a general outline of, of Joshua receiving some commands at some point, communicating to the officers at another point, and the officers communicating to the people. But verses seven and on are probably expanding on that time frame, right? It's not a huge deal. It's just if you get uh, confused with what's happening, or the timing. Um, Just understand it's not necessarily linear, okay? That's confusing. I know that was all confusing, but um, it it makes sense. All right. What's the general picture that we're getting, though? What is going to happen? There they stand, right there at the, the brink of the Jordan River. What is the general outline that's going to take place? Well, the people are going to wait while the priests, the Levitical priests, and only Levites could be priests, but a special group of priests were going to carry this ark, that box, 3,000 feet ahead of the Israelites. And at some point, they're going to cross the Jordan. But here, does it say anywhere what's going to happen, how it's going to happen? Now, we have an assumption, right? A pretty good one. Well, you know, I remember the Red Sea you know incident, so you might already kind of suspect what 's going to happen, but here it kind of holds that information back, and we 'll see that that gets held back a lot and it 's trying to build suspense. Whoever wrote the book of Joshua, maybe Joshua himself, um, is trying to build suspense here, so part of the reason that maybe the the storytelling isn 't just event event, event, event is to kind of build suspense about what is actually going to happen. so the setup at the beginning here is the rest of the people are going to be on the, on the shore, and the ark is going to go ahead of them. They're going to be, you know, 3,000 feet is about three-fifths of a mile, 10 football fields away, and you will, most people will not be able to see <laughs> where the ark is, but the ark is going to pass through them so they know that they are taking it. So it's going to pass through their midst, and it's going to go ahead of them three-fifths of a mile. Why? What's the point of this picture? Why did God command them to do this? It says that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. In other words, it's to make absolutely clear that the only one that can lead them to the promised land is God. This is a visual depiction to demonstrate that they need to depend and trust that this is God's campaign, that this is God's work, that he alone is qualified and able to take them into the promised land, and they cannot do anything except expect God to come through, expect God to work. Now, how do we connect that to us? What's the point for us? I was just thinking, when's the last time you intentionally made sure that God was the lead in any decision-making, that the foremost question that you thought, the priority you made, and whether you're making decisions for your kids or for your family, maybe even at work, was, which way is God's way? Which way is God's leading? Am I going the way that God is leading? Am I actually putting him first in this planning? Am I making sure that he alone will get the glory because this was all led by him and because of him. Because that is the clear picture that this scene is setting up with the ark being so far in front of it. It's just far and away. It's not that, that God should be like a, a top priority in your life and then a close second, you know, your family, your health, your well-being, right? It's intended to say God is far and away, far and above every other priority, that we ought to have. And in a way, uh, I don't like the idea, actually. Um, and most of us do. This It's natural. It's kind of a Western kind of way of thinking. When we think of priorities, to think God first, and then family, and then blah, 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 or whatever, it's better to think um, in terms of, like, a wheel, right? The hub of it is God, right? And he is the priority in the same sense if the middle is gone, then you don't have, you don't have a wheel, no, the, the wheel must be there, and it is supporting all the other things you must do. Those are all important, you know, family, work. And, you know, even if you had to, you know, structure those, sometimes, you know, there's sometimes times where you got to make a call where this is actually more important. I don't know how rigid that is. But God being the center of your life and the center of every decision and priority, whether it's a decision about your family or uh, about your finances, God must be the center of it. God must be the highest priority in it. So I I think the problem with having a hierarchical structure like that is is that we we tend to think that to put God first means to put nothing else, because how could you ever move past that priority, right? Like if God is first, when do you ever get to the second thing? Did you really honor God the way you should have? No, the, the better way is that God is to be honored in everything else. He is the hub, and every other relationship, person, responsibility, it always must feed back into what does God want me to do with that right? So in the same way, God being so far away, so far in front, it's just to say, yes, he is the only priority, he's the only way uh, to, to conquer uh, the promise, and he's the only one that you can trust, he's the only one that can lead, and that has ramifications for every part of our life. If you put God first in your family, if you put God first in your marriage, if you put God first in your work ethic, if you put God first in your church life, etc. So I think that's one way we can clearly Uh, think of how to apply this picture here of the ark uh, going before them. Second thing we see beyond the ark being placed way on front is that the people needed to be consecrated. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Yahweh will do wonders among you. The people needed to be consecrated. Now, literally, that means set aside typically set aside for holy use or some kind of religious use. But practically, what it meant is that these Israelites needed to probably physically get clean, wash themselves. It meant that they would abstain from certain activities, certainly sinful ones that could make you unclean, but sometimes even fasting from things that were good. Sometimes it meant they put on special clothing that's set aside for this special time. But the whole picture of it is that they needed to set themselves apart, right? They need, they need to distinguish themselves. They needed to look and act different, to be prepared for the wonders that God will do. The people needed to have a pure heart. Now, the thing is, it, it doesn't mean that the people were perfect to begin with, does it? Because they needed to consecrate themselves. What's the implication? They're not consecrated, right? They're not set apart. They are unclean. They've been doing things wrong. The assumption is not that they were always ever perfect if you tell someone to wash up, right? It means that they were uh, in need of a cleansing. It reminds you of 1 John 1.9. We talk about it all all the time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, the Israelites, too, physically and spiritually, they needed to be right with God as best as they could, which meant come with Him with sacrifices, come with Him to God with confession, uh, come with Him and say, I want to be clean inside and outside here, are the outward manifestations of my inward purity, so I'm not going to eat this, and I'm going to wear this, I'm going to clean this. But all of it was to show God, I want to be clean before you. And they did that on the basis of faith. It's always been by faith. It's not that any work could make them clean. It was their faith that could make them uh, declared righteous by God. We've seen that um, with Abraham and with other figures. We know it's not by works that they're consecrating themselves. And in a way, of course, That's still true for us. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. You know what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God wants to show wonders and do wonderful things through us. And the qualification isn't how talented are you? What's your resume look like? Where did you go to college? Are you good at this? No, God doesn't say the only people that can see my wonders or do my wonders are those who are truly smart, capable, rich, powerful, famous. Churches oftentimes look for pastors with impressive resumes, laundry list of achievements, things that they've done for the church, but that's not what God focuses on. All he needs is a pure heart. Then they shall see the wonders of God. And to be pure, if you want to be available for God's work, just to see God's work, all we need is to have a clean heart before the Lord. And you can't cleanse yourself, God knows that. So what is he asking us really to do? If you want to see my wonders, then what? Confess your sins. Don't 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 pretend like clean? It's like when you you tell your kids to wash up before dinner, and then they show up, you know, their hands are filthy, they got stuff all over their face. You say, did you wash up? Yes. Well, come on. (laughs) I can see the dirt on your face. Now, God, he can see all of it, every part of our hearts, every part of our our sin. (laughs) He wants us to be pure and clean so that he can show his glory to us, and so he's got to provide a way for us to be cleansed. He he has to provide a way for us that we can be pure and it can't be based on how good and great we are lest God be accused of preferring those who are wisest and 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 most noble and mature and famous. No. God just says, "You know, if you confess your sins, I can cleanse you from that unrighteousness." So of course we connect that Today, we can easily connect that today. Are are we in need of cleansing? Are you in need of a pure heart? If you know that God can see every part of your intentions and thoughts, what are the things you need to confess? Because if you do, guess what? God will forgive. He will forgive on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ, who did live a pure life. It's not about doing good works to impress God. Quite the opposite. It's just about admitting we're unclean, and trusting him to wash us of it. The same way that we trust that going into the bath with the soap will remove the dirt and scum, right? You're just trusting, you you know, you go into the bathroom and and you trust that this is not mud water, you know, that this is not already dirty water. You just go in and you will be clean. So you trust God the same way, that if I plead Jesus, then I will be clean because his blood can cleanse us. Verse six takes place, just before they are about to set out right and the the ark is going to pass before all the people everyone was supposed to be aware that the vessel which represented god's power and his mercy and his presence was now going before them to lead them into the promised land so again it was meant to be obvious that god and god alone is going to take them there now until this point no one knows what's going to happen, not even Joshua. Like, okay, so I get it. We're going to cross the Jordan. We're going to go to, you know, we're going to take the promised land. But uh, what are the details about that? Because the Jordan River, uh, at this point, could be quite, um, quite a large task to overcome. So we'll talk a little bit about geography. We talked about this already. You can look at the map on the back there, or if your Bible has a map, Uh, of this region. You can look at it yourself. But if you find Jericho, which is just above the Dead Sea, all right, the Dead Sea is the lower lake at the south end of the Jordan River. The Sea of Galilee, where Jesus lived, uh, was in the northern part of Israel. And if you look about less than 10 miles north of the Dead Sea, you'll see Jericho on the west of it. And it's very close within... um, you know, several miles of the Jordan River. And at that point of the river, you know, we don't know exactly, like right now, the Jordan River, there are places where you could like jump across it. It gets very thin um, uh, right now. But at the time, they say, and since this was flood season, we'll see that in verse 15, it could have been around a 100 feet wide at this point, right? Now, a 100 feet is not like like a super big deal in terms of fording it. Um, It may not have even been that deep, maybe 10 feet deep or so. But the issue is, at this time, the water would would have been turbulent. So there's there's one commentator who said that uh, someone tried to swim across the Jordan River in like 1850, strong swimmer, and he couldn't do it, even though it was quite shallow. So it's just the turbulence of it. Now, you imagine like millions of people trying to cross like 100 feet, you know, 10 feet deep. It's not going to happen. It's a logistical nightmare. Even imagine if it was muddy, right? Just all the animals and possessions and carts and wagons. It was, would have been a logistical nightmare. So we're going to see why it's important that they crossed on dry land. The point is there's, there has to be a plan here because this is not going to happen by any natural means, and they certainly were not prepared. God had not given them, all right, here's how you make a raft, or here's how you, you know, ford a river, nothing like that. No instruction like that has been given. But up until this point, we still have no instructions about what is actually going to take place. Now imagine, it's like the morning of the day, right? Verse 7, Yahweh said to Joshua, today, so now we're at today. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail. Drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of Yahweh, Yahweh of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. It's the morning of. God apparently has not told him any plan of what's going to happen until this moment. You're kind of building up tension. Like, what exactly? So we have the ark, you know, way in front of the Israelite people um, being born. What happens when they get to the river? What do we do? And finally, Yahweh once again reiterates the promise he's made over and over and over again to Joshua this morning to be with him like he was with Moses, to follow them through into the promised land and to keep all of his promises that he's made. God is concerned with both the micro and the macro. What's the big picture? Well, the Israelites need to get in the promised land. This is like a, a promise that has been pending for hundreds of years since the time of Abraham and now to the time of Joshua. Hundreds of years have have passed. So the big picture is God is finally going to accomplish this purpose. But in the micro, what is happening? Yahweh is saying, Joshua, I will be with you. I'm here to take care of you also. I will exalt you at the right time. I care about you, the individual. Now, what, what would... You know, how would Joshua respond? How, how should that make him feel? You're being told God is going to exalt you. You are going to be like Moses, one of the most iconic figures in history. Even secular people know who Moses is, right? How would it be to hear that God is going to exalt him? Well, I imagine that he was humbled. First Peter 5, 6. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What does that tell you about Joshua then? He was humble, he waited. Joshua had to wait until almost the last minute to wait on God's plan of what was going to happen as they approached this Jordan River. He wasn't rash. He didn't jump the gun. He didn't say, mm, I'm not hearing anything from Yahweh. Maybe I need to kind of start making a plan B or plan C. I need to figure out something. No, his, his trust in Yahweh was evidenced by his patience to wait till God said, here's the plan. Now, I, I think maybe a more personal way to connect this and maybe apply this, just imagine you're the president, right? Imagine you're the president. Everyone's waiting for you to make a big decision. It's going to affect the whole nation, so you, you tell everyone in a newscast, I, I want to make the right call, just give me some time. Now, in your experience, are the masses very patient with that kind of, hey, just wait for me to make a really good call. I want to make sure I make the right decision. Are the, are people, do people prize the wisdom of someone who would say, give me a second, I want to make sure I make the right call, especially when they're in a position of leadership like the president's. <laughs> I mean, you know what the, what, the, what the news and the media would say if, if someone said that. And if one day passed, and another day passed, and another day passed, I mean, people would be saying, this is proof of ineffective leadership. People would be clamoring for answers, making accusations, trying to force the hand. There would be all kinds of news stories and people. It just We're like that. We're like that. And this had actually happened in Israel's history. Remember when Moses was in Sinai receiving the commandments? He'd just gone for a few days. What did the people do? We need answers now. We need to do something right now. We can't wait another day, another moment. Aaron, make us a golden calf, right? That's, that's, that's people. That's us. <laughs> you know, how much humility, how much patience and trust in God is it to wait until god says to do something when you got millions of people sitting there you know pressuring you telling you hey you know we need to do something what's the plan with the jordan river joshua now this is reading a little bit in between the lines i'm just appealing to human nature but again maybe trying to you know connect uh, to us like how, how often are we willing to wait and trust god's timing an hour Two hours before you start making your backup plans, before you're like, well, you know, God's probably not going to come through. I've, I've literally prayed for 15 minutes, and he didn't respond within a minute. You know, I, I better start making my own plans and decisions here, right? I, I mean, that's just us. That's who we are. That's what we do. And it's not... <laughs> J- Joshua had the character and the humility to wait for God to exalt him and to teach the Israelites to do the, to do the same. I mean, by doing this, what's he doing but teaching the Israelites? You know what? We need to wait for God. I don't care what you say. I don't care how much you try to pressure me. I know that we cannot do anything until the Lord leads it. So we can I think relate to that a, a little bit. Especially now, I don't know. I mean, we always think that our generation is, is mer- worse or, you know, you know, every generation Behind us seem to take things more slow and and take it easy. I don't know. This morning I didn't mention it, but I was just thinking, did, you know, talking about identity crisis and things, I mean, did, there's a large portion of human history where where folks just worked out in the fields, agricultural, or maybe they're hunting. Like, did they have an identity crisis while they're plowing the fields and they're hunting animals? And, you know, were they just too busy? They didn't, or they didn't think of that? Well, I I think they, they probably did sit out there and say, is this really what life is about? You know, just growing food and and reaping it, doing it again year after year is just really what all life is about. And I I tend to think that that human nature hasn't changed very much. And so in the same way, you know, I, I don't think people like to sit around and wait for God in Joshua's day, no less ours. You know, sure, we've got a lot of technology and distractions. We have microwaves and we have more of a culture even now, maybe more than before of impatience, wanting things right here right now and maybe those who had to wait for a crop you know after several months maybe they had more patience than we did maybe they did but when they came home and and dinner wasn't late it was late did they complain about that probably so i don't know i think who we are as people hasn't changed much that waiting is very difficult but the truly humble in god's eyes know how to wait for him joshua in any case finally receives the plan Right In verse uh, 8, the priests are going to bear the ark, and when they come to the brinks of the water, Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now notice, that's where the quotation marks end. If you're reading carefully, the narrator here doesn't reveal that God gives the rest of the instructions to Joshua. Does that make sense? <laughs> hope that was... you a huge commotion, and then my son walks through the door. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's not my kid. Are they okay? Okay, they're okay. All right. <laughs> that was a classic moment. All right. Now, now, now look, right? Uh, verse 8, you have the beginning of a plan, you know? When you get to the brink of the waters, Jordan, just stand still. Period. And then what's to say next? And Joshua said to the people of Israel, and he seems to continue on the plan well what's happening there well it's it 's kind of like a movie i don 't know if you've ever seen this sort of scene in a movie i feel like I feel like I saw this scene in in some military movie i don 't remember which one, but it's the kind of scene where they have the general giving orders to all the top officers, right, and as he's speaking, it kind of transitions to these officers speaking to the captains and giving them the debrief, right? And then it transitions from the captains, you know, speaking, giving to the, uh, you know, to the NCOs who are now explaining to the grunts the operation, right? And and the camera is following one instruction, right? One, one briefing on the mission, but it's being, you know, you're, you're going from the, the generals to the officers to the captains, to the NCOs. And you're just kind of panning through that. It's kind of the same thing here. Like we know that everything Joshua is about to say is not commands that he thought up. We know this is what God wanted him to do. But you're going from the word of of Yahweh to Joshua, and then you just go right smoothly into Joshua telling the people, "Here's what the Lord commanded." Does that make sense? If you're not a you know movie or filmography guy, just understand that it's not that there's that that you know he got one line of instruction. Just you just stand still in the Jordan. No, everything that Joshua's about to say are all the commands of God. Because he says, come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. So we know. Everything he's about to say is the unveiling of the plan. But this is like a, a narrative tactic. Again, Hebrew literature, really interesting that way. It knows how to use the, the, the grammar and the forms to kind of paint that, that even like a cinematic kind of transition for the command that it's God speaking to Joshua and then Joshua speaking to the people. It's all one, all the same command. Now, <laughs> what is the instruction? It is not just to stand there. But before he gets there, he makes sure to emphasize this point in verse 10. Here is how you know you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you, the, the Canaan, all the, all the ites, okay? Joshua puts the focus on God. Again, Joshua is a humble man that God is exalting at the right time. And so what's he gonna do? Is he gonna talk about how, how he's gonna lead them, how he's gonna do all these wonderful things? No, he wants to impress upon the Israelites, God is the one who's going to do this. This is all happening so that you will know that God is the kind of God that keeps his promises without fail. Let's say it this way. It's easy to be humble when you truly believe God is God. (laughs) Really easy to be humble if you really believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And you are absolutely sure of that pride grows in your heart when you think god can't do what he says because then you have to worry you have to do things yourself right you have you have god be plan b or c i mean we're talking about a second ago in our impatience how quickly you know we we might turn from waiting on god to well i need to go to plan b or plan c but sometimes in our pride because we don't believe god we say you know what well, I know God is one that loves me and takes care of me, but I know that really i got to try and take care of myself first, do what I can, and then God coming through is like plan B, plan C, plan D. And you think that because he may not pull through, so it starts to depend more on you than him. And see, pride will grow where a lack of trust in God exists. I've met so many who basically say that, you know, it's just all on me. For anything good to happen in my life, I know I need to do it for myself. People who say that they're Christian, but, you know, life has shown me, well, that's all nice pie-in-the-sky stuff, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I have to do it, I have to take care of it. But Joshua had no doubt in his mind, God is faithful, God will do it, and that takes a lot of humility to believe that and trust that. Now, the ites here, Canaanites, you know, Hittites, so on, so on, um, it's a classic list of the various pagan peoples that lived in the Promised Land. We won't do a full analysis on them at the moment. We're going to save that for when we when we will have to engage these folks a little bit more in depth. So right now it's it's not trying to get in the weeds about these uh, these folks. But uh, the the point is that God, part of what God is going to do, is He is going to uh, judge these pagans who have gone. F- full-blown against God, and part of God's plan in bringing them to the promised land, as we've said before in Deuteronomy, was to bring judgment to them. Now, the, the thing is, there's a lot of ites there, aren't there? <laughs> there's a lot of ites there. There's a, the whole land is full of, of pagans who, who despise the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, who do wicked things, including sacrificing their children and and all other sorts of immoral acts. They deserve God's judgment. But on paper, you would say, there's no way the Israelites could take all of these people out. And so there is an assurance that Joshua has. We haven't seen it unfold yet, but we will, where they will, in fact, be able to conquer these people that are mightier and more fierce than the Israelites. <clears throat> Verse <clears throat> 11, this is where it's, it, it might be that this instruction um, that, that Joshua received, we're he- hearing again um, in chapter th- the beginning of chapter 3. Remember I said, well, you know, where did this command come from to, to take the ark and do all these things? Well, this might be just kind of telling us um, earlier what happened later. We won't, I won't rehash that, but uh, here simply verses 11 um, through 12. He is uh, talking about bringing the ark in front or passing the ark through them and before them into the Jordan. Um, We add in verse 12 that 12 men from the tribes of Israel will need to be selected from each tribe. We'll see why that is the case in chapter four, but just know that there's gonna be 12 men selected, one from each tribe that will have a special purpose in the midst of the commands to cross the Jordan. All right, verse 13 is actually where we get the plan for crossing the Jordan, like what is actually going to happen we have been building up, building up to this, finally, Joshua reveals what the Lord had said, and it is going to be that as soon as the feet of the priests enter into the Jordan they 're going to stand in it right with their soggy sandals, and the waters are going to stop upstream, so the the direction of the flow of water. In Israel, it's from north to south, from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. So from north to south, the waters are going to stop somewhere north of them. We get the details in a second. And they are going to cross over the Jordan sort of like they did with the Red Sea. Let's be honest. You probably saw this coming, like I said. <laughs> Just a classic crossing the sea on dry ground situation. I mean, how many times have you heard, well, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this story so many times in the Exodus that almost you expect, anytime there's a a river in the Bible, you expect, are they going to cross through it on dry land? At least that's the way it was as a kid. I just thought, any river in the Bible, oh, they're going to cross through, it's going to stop, it's going to split in the middle, walk through. Well, it only happens really twice. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, maybe there might be one more. Actually, don't, don't quote me on that. I, there might have been one more. In any case, no, not every single body of water in the Bible. Oh, it's like they're either going to cross through it or they're going to walk on top of it. That's <laughs> If you grew up in the church, that's what you conceive of every time you see a body of water. Are they going to go on top or through? All right, anyway. <laughs> so it might not surprise us. Why would it be surprising to the people hearing Joshua, though, that they're going to cross through on dry land? Have they heard... You know, have they experienced this? No, actually. The only people who've experienced it physically are Joshua and Caleb, because they were the only two from that generation who escaped Egypt who were still alive at this point. So everyone else there has only heard it in terms of tales and stories of what happened when they escaped Egypt. None of them have actually experienced it. It is just like a Sunday school story to them. And so there is a significance here. Um, This is, I suspect, Joshua kind of knew what might happen, but all the rest of the folks had uh, no idea. This would be the first time, at least, for them to experience the providence of God in this specific way. Now, uh, what, you know, I kind of um, stood out to me here as I was trying to think, well, how do I, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, Have I told you about when I was a kid and my next door neighbor had a pool and he wasn't even a Christian, but he just, you know, he'd gone to some Sunday schools. He'd seen a a few Christian, you know, kids programs. He thought for sure, if you believed hard enough, you could walk on water. And so what we do in this pool is back up, try to get a running start and just really like believe that you could walk on water and we just run towards the, the pool, Right. And every time, you know, what happened, right right into the water. Um, (laughs) There's absolutely, you know, it was pagan the way I was thinking of. I'd grown up going to church, you know, and I knew it wasn't just about having faith that you could walk on the water that was the issue, you know, with Peter. Uh, I didn't have very good theology then, but, you know, I thought it was a fun, you know, game to try. Here, though, there is a sense in which, hey, could God have dried up this river hours before, days before? Could he have made it very obvious? This is the way that you're going to cross, right? He could have done that way before, but what did he want them to do? He wanted them to get their sandals wet. He wanted them to actually go into it and show some faith. And that's a lot of times, yes, God could just show you the open door, tell you you need to go through it, and it paves the whole way. But most of the time, there's a little bit more faith on our part involved. Most of the time, it's we we know what God wants us to do, and it's going to be tough, and it might not even make sense to make take the stand that we're going to take. But we know it's the right thing, and, and and you need to take that step. And then God kind of tells you or shows you, yes, <laughs> yeah, this was... This is it. I will be with you every single step after this step too. It's not always that way. You know, there are times when just it's very obvious. God wants you to go this way. He prepares it all beforehand. Hopefully you've experienced that in your life. But um, a lot of times, he, he does want you to get your sandals a little wet. You might think, well, why does God operate like that? Why not make it very clear, very obvious, every single time what he wants you to do, strictly speaking? Well, it's one of those... You know, that perpetual balance and paradox between God's sovereign purpose and our own human responses and responsibilities and personal exercise of faith. And faith is knowing that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And you acting like you believe that God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. So if you know God is going to get you across the Jordan, then what do you do except put your feet into the water? And so it is that this is the plan. (laughs) So, verses 14 and on, what happened? So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above "'stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, "'the city that is beside Zarethan, "'and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabath, "'the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, "'and the people passed over opposite Jericho. "'Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh "'stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, "'and all Israel was passing over on dry ground "'until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan.'" This is where all of the instruction and planning finally pay off. Do they respond with faith and therefore act in obedience? Yes, they did. This time, praise God, because they don't always get it. They don't always do it. But here, they did do it, and their faith is rewarded with one of those just supernatural miracles uh, that we see in the Bible. Uh, Adam is a city about 20 miles north. So what seems to be happening is that the water has been miraculously stopped 20 miles north. It's standing up in a heap, uh, and that obviously cuts off the water, the, the Arabath that's mentioned here, uh, the Sea of the Arabath, the Salt Sea. That's what we call now the Dead Sea. So, of course, if the water's cut off there you know, north of them and the water flows north to south, there's no water going into the Dead Sea. So it's saying it's completely dried, dried up. Now, that water in Adam seems to be standing up in a heap. How do they how do they know that? How do they how do they see that? Well, we're not told exactly how that knowledge uh, came to them. Maybe later on, um, you know, they you know talk with people who lived in that city, and they said, "Oh yeah, that's exactly when we crossed over." We're not told how they would know about what's happening 20 miles up up the river from them, um, but we know that there's a miracle happening. Now, you can get a little bit into the the nitty-gritty of the mechanics of this. Like, for example, if the moment that they stepped in the water is the moment that the water's heaped up in Adam 20 miles away, it would still take some time, wouldn't it, for that flow to actually stop where you you were. Um, Also, it wouldn't immediately dry up the ground if it had stopped. So, you know, commentators say, well, the water must have been stopped up well before, so that the moment that the priest stepped on the ground, it was it was already dry, right? And it just like it just happened to be God timed it so that as soon as they stepped in, there was no trickle of water. I think there's a few miracles happening here. I think there's just a few miracles happening here. I think that the water was miraculously stopped up at Adam, and that the water immediately either got soaked in the ground or, you know, was sped to the Dead Sea because it's clear that they walked over on dry ground. And why is that important, that it's actually, like, dry and not just muddy? Like I said, if you have millions of people crossing over in this mud, they would get stuck. You know, it it would have been a colossal mess if it just, like, if the water had just stopped flowing, there's still a ton of water in the ground. And it would have been absolutely catastrophic. They would have been stuck. Wagons would have been broken. Animals would have broken their legs. You know, old ladies and old men would, you know, have been tripping and falling. No, it was. it's clear here that there's a miracle in that the ground itself was dry. So my take is immediately the water stopped up in a dam and the ground beneath them. Maybe it just, you know supernatural sponge action, just like the water's sucked into the ground um, or just carried away. But there's a couple miracles happening here. Is that, does that make sense? However you want to work it out, you know, make it work for you, but don't go against the text, all right? Don't go against the text. That is the way my natural, most natural understanding uh, of this. Um, now, yeah, so in Exodus, when you compare it to the Red Sea, there's like a wind that was blowing for, um, for like a day before, like an east wind or something. It's not the same kind of thing that happens. So the Red Sea is actually not exactly the same kind of crossing as the Jordan River. In any case, don't know the logistics of the miracle, but we know that the Israelites crossed on dry ground safely where it was by any other estimation impossible for them to have crossed In other words, only God could have enabled this crossing here at the Jordan. Because God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who exalts the humble at the right time. God is a God who (laughs) wants us to exhibit faith and trust in him. God is the kind of God that wants to be seen. His wonders to be witnessed by us if we would be pure in heart and come to him for cleansing. So, if you're not a Christian this morning, you might think, oh, we're reading stuff that's like Greek mythology. You know, um, this is all, that's nice that that informs your religion, but, you know, that's not, you know, that's not historical. Well, here's the problem with that. We know Jericho was destroyed. (laughs) We know that the Israelites conquered that land. We know that the Jordan River is an actual river. At some point, they had to have crossed it you know, logistically, literally. So to reckon how this great host of people crossed the Jordan, you still have to figure that out because all the other pieces are there, that Jericho was destroyed, we'll talk about that, Um, that the Israelites conquered the region, that they started, you know, there, and not some other point anywhere. You'd have to cross the Jordan River. It's a logistical nightmare to do that. So you still have to deal with that on top of the other facts and on top of the fact that this explicitly is trying to tell us history as it happened. If you're not a Christian, the main point of this text is to tell you that there is a God who keeps his promises, that there is a God orchestrating all events of time and history, and there's a God who says he will bring judgment and justice upon every injustice and every sin, not not just murderers, But every single wrong, every single act and word and thought even that did not align with his own perfect attributes of love and compassion and mercy, so there must be judgment on you. And if you're not a Christian, he will have to bring his wrath and fury against that because without punishment, sin doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a wrong thing if there's no consequence for it. You can tell me that it's illegal to wear sandals and chew bubble gum, but if nothing happens, if I wear sandals and chew bubble gum, guess what? There's no punishment for it? It doesn't matter. There's no such thing as that's wrong. No, we know that there is right and wrong. We know that God must punish it if he is good. And if you're not a Christian, you, the only way you could please him and appeal to him is not on the basis of yourself, but on the basis of one Jewish man who is the fulfillment Of the promises of the whole Bible, who came, lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose again to conquer sin, to show that he did pay the price for our sin and will be returning. If you're not a Christian, you're being told in this text and to believe in this God, that he did such a thing. Just as sure as they crossed the Jordan River, Jesus Christ died on a cross. For sinners and rose again. If you are a Christian, I hope there's a few takeaways that you might gather from uh, this scene here in the in the river of Jordan of about three thousand, no, three thousand like four hundred years ago, a long time ago. We're reading about history that happened that we have evidence for. Like I said. Hopefully this encourages your faith or encourages you to walk in a little bit more obedience. So let me pray and we'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Joshua. Thank you for a picture of obedience when we can get it. The Israelites oftentimes uh, forsaking your ways, but here we see a beautiful moment where they do all that you've commanded and we see the blessing uh, and the wonder that they uh, had at, at this miracle that occurred underneath their very feet. And I pray, Lord, that that would encourage us to likewise put some faith and trust in you, to take a little bit of step of faith now and again to, to actually show that we think you're in charge of all of this. So help us, Lord, to do that. It is so tough. I don't mean to demean anyone that has a hard time walking by faith. We're all there, and we're all selfish at times and lack the humility um, to, to, to wait for you and your plans. I pray, Lord, that you draw us close, see us, show us again and again, and again, why it's worth it to wait for your timing. So thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that you'd bless the meal and the fellowship tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.